So musicians tend to be very entrepreneurial. Music teachers are also church musicians. Church musicians often teach privately. Performers play and sing in concerts, musicals, even bars. When I and Katie moved to Chatham almost exactly a year ago, I figured that after I was settled here in my church position, I would look around to see how I might make music in addition to my church duties. Recently, I saw an opening for a choir director to start a church at an older folks' day center in New York City. And with the help from the staff at the center, we started three weeks ago, and it's been going very well. The members of the center are a super lively bunch. Uh, we've got music started like Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye, um, Down in the River to Pray, the camp meeting song, and Besame Mucho, um, and it gives me a chance to start learning Spanish. I'm really glad that I'm doing it. It's a volunteer position. Sorry, honey. So I don't get paid. But as soon as I saw the opening for it, I kind of said to myself, I can do that. And it felt right. Um, it's a, a chance to start a community within a community. And church anywhere, or rather everywhere, is about being in a community. And it felt good to help starting to create one. Ian Forrester wrote, Only Connect. And like Pastor Sharon's sermon from last week, when she talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus connected those 5,000 people when they were fed. And they shared something. And sharing something, an experience, a prayer, or a song, is what I think church is for. So I'm really glad that I can make it happen for a new community with whom I'm privileged to connect. Church, community, connections are always all around us. like to present this to Peter at Church Can Happen Anywhere t-shirt. If you would like one of these snazzy shirts, <laughs> sign up. Hear the word of God. So then, the word of God from Ephesians 4.25 to 5.2. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know I already said this, um, but I'm really glad to be back. Uh, I'm realizing that now as I see all of you, and as you came in, I met you, and now as I'm seeing some of you I missed, it's really good to see you all again. Um, so just thanks for being you, being awesome. Thank you. Today's passage in Ephesians is chokeful of advice, just begging for what you might call a yeah, but, as in, yeah, but, as in, yeah, I know I should speak the truth to my neighbors, but lying would really be so much easier. Or, yeah, I know I shouldn't let my anger lead me to sinful behavior, but sinful behavior is so much more fun. (laughs) A yeah, but is to say, yeah, I know I should do it, but I just don't want to. A yeah, but is what we turn to, whether consciously or not, when we don't have a good reason for the bad behavior we'd really like to commit. And these verses in Ephesians, there's an insert here so you can follow along to make it a little easier. They prompt a lot of yeah, buts, I think, because both their meaning and their merit are obvious. Sure, we may debate the finer points of some of these verses, but I think that even the most stubborn of us would admit that there is some obvious merit and wisdom to each. The usual problem with these verses isn't understanding them. There's no metaphors or parables we have to parse through. And the problem isn't understanding why they would be good things to do. The problem is simply doing them. The problem is the follow-through. That's certainly my problem, anyway. When I read these verses, two or three of them immediately pop out to me because I know those are the ones I struggle with. I'll tell you, one of the ones I'm looking at is there in verses 31. Oh, you don't have the verses there, but it's 31, 32. Um, It's the second to last paragraph there. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I know that when things don't go my way, I have a tendency toward bitterness, especially if it's early in the morning and I haven't had any coffee yet. (laughs) And I know that sometimes I'll let my bitterness lead me to snip at others or make a snide remark because it, it just feels good sometimes to let a little bit of that frustration out. And I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't take my frustration out on others like that. But in the moment, I honestly, I just don't care that much. But that's just one example. I'm sure all of you have one or two of your own. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share them. But instead, I want you to look at this Ephesians passage in your insert and pick out the bit that really pops out to you. If you have a pen, circle or underline the instruction which you know that you've too often said, yeah, but to. And if you don't have a pen, just sear in your mind whatever part of this you know you really ought to work on.
hopefully everyone has an idea of which one they're looking at now. Okay, now that you've got that chosen, you can tuck it away for a moment because we're on to something completely different. Um, well, not really, but it's going to seem that way. We're going through a story in 2 Samuel, which is the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament uh, scripture in the lectionary this week. And on the face of it, I know it doesn't really seem like there's any connection, uh, but I promise there are some connections, and I promise we'll get to them. And the, the story uh, is also in your insert if it helps you to follow along, um, but I'm going to run us through it. So if you're a better visual or auditory listener, um, you don't have to worry about it. And the first thing I want to say about Second Samuel is that it is awesome. Serious. I love First and Second Samuel in terms of just like pure entertainment. These are easily my two favorite books in the Bible. I mean, the Gospels, whatever, but First and Second Samuel—that's where it's at. And I love First and Second Samuel because they play out like a epic sword and sandals movie trilogy or a TV show. There's like great battles and romance, love and betrayal. There's there. Are cunning characters and miracles and uh, long character arcs and stunning plot twists. There's even, and Star Wars fans will want to listen to this bit, there's even a bit where right before the battle in which which the once chosen one, who eventually turned to the dark side, has an encounter with the ghost of his mentor in a place called Endor. Endor. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) There's more you can work through. I'm just going to tease you with it. Um, and you can look it right up right now in your Bible or, or your phone if you want to. I honestly will not be offended. Uh, <laughs> you might start in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And in the simplest of terms, 1 Samuel is the story of how David becomes King David. And then 2 Samuel is how King David stays King David, which wasn't an easy task, for he had many challengers. Primate among them was his oldest son, Absalom. And two things we ought to know about Absalom for today. And the first is that he was a hunk. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 through 26 say, Now in all Israel, there was no one to be praised so much for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year, he used to cut it when it was heavy for him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. So if you can, imagine a beautiful sort of Fabio character. Long... (laughs) flowing hair. And the second thing to know about Absalom is that even though he eventually goes to war with the the beloved King David, the author of 2 Samuel doesn't cast him as all bad, at least not at the beginning. Vain, maybe. Cunning and prone to bouts of anger, certainly, but not altogether unrighteous either. You, the reader, may even find yourself sympathizing with him from time to time. You see, the falling out between David and Absalom begins when Amnon, one of David's other sons, and Absalom's half-brother, 
when Amnon rapes Tamar, and Tamar is one of David's daughters, Absalom and Amnon's sister. Absalom is the first to find out, and he lifts up his now disgraced sister and brings her back to live in his house with him, for she would no longer be able to marry. And it says, the text says that Absalom hated Amnon for what he had done. And then soon King David finds out, and he too becomes furious, but for reasons that aren't entirely clear, he doesn't do anything not to help uh, Tamar and not to punish Amnon. So Absalom waits. He waits for the perfect opportunity, and two years later, he murders Amnon in revenge for Tamar. And that leads Absalom, or that leads Absalom to flee the kingdom uh, for a few years, and then eventually he comes back, but is placed under house arrest for a couple more. And then eventually that ends when Absalom makes a nominal gesture of fealty to David, but almost immediately starts to plan the seeds or plant the seeds for a coup. And pretty soon the two raise armies and are at war with each other. Which brings us to the scripture before you. It starts just prior to a big battle between the two armies. David, who after all this time still loves his son Absalom, orders his three generals to take in Absalom alive. And of the three generals, Joab is the only one you really need to know about. Joab was the man that David frequently turned to whenever he needed something or someone to be taken care of. Joab did what needed to be done so that David didn't have to get his hands dirty. And though Joab could sometimes be something of a loose cannon, and though Joab certainly wasn't what we would call a godly man, David kept him around. Joab solved problems with ruthless efficiency, and David found that useful. And so the battle begins. And it does not go well for Absalom's forces who struggle to fight in the forest where the battle eventually moves. And as Absalom is riding his steed towards the enemy, his head gets stuck in a tree, presumably his long flowing hair caught in the branches, and his steed rides off without him. It's almost this comical scene where Absalom is just sort of hanging, um, helpless. It was almost as if God had gift-wrapped Absalom to be taken in alive. And the lectionary text before you cuts through a lot of this, but so I'll fill in the gaps. When Joab and his troops find uh, find Absalom still hanging there, defenseless, Joab orders his troops to kill Absalom. But the troops, they heard the king's orders to keep Absalom alive, and they refused for fear that they would get killed by the king. And Joab gets frustrated. He says, I don't have time for this. So he takes three branches and stabs them into Absalom's chest while he still lives. It's very gruesome. And then only then, perhaps out of pity, that Joab's soldiers finish the job and kill Absalom. Soon after the battle is won and David's forces return home to tell 
him the news to tell David of his great victory. But all David can do is weep. In chapter 18, verse 33, he cries, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's a tragic end. It wasn't how it was supposed to end. David never meant for Absalom to get hurt. Things just went astray. It almost plays out like a Shakespeare play if it wasn't thousands or hundreds of years before Shakespeare. I digress. The literature reference I really want us to focus on is one I learned is a principle I learned back in a creative writing class back in college. And it was a quote or a, a paraphrase from Aristotle, I believe. And in his estimation, the best endings to a drama are those that are surprising yet inevitable. Which is to say that the reader should not expect the ending, but once the ending arrives, once all is revealed, the reader should be convinced that the story could have ended in no other way. Once the reader looks back and pieces together all the clues and details that were sprinkled throughout the story, the ending sort of locks into place. It fits. Whether it's a comedy or a tragedy, it fits. And I'm reminded of that when I read this passage. It's surprising when Absalom gets caught in a tree because that just doesn't happen every day. But when we think about Absalom, beautiful, vain, prideful Absalom, it makes sense. Of course it was his long flowing locks that did him in. Because we know from Proverbs and our own experiences that pride comes before the fall. Absalom's fall was a surprising yet almost inevitable twist. But the story goes one twist further. Even with Absalom now in prime position to be taken in alive, just as David had ordered his army to do, Joab disobeys and kills Absalom. It's surprising that Absalom dies at this moment, but also not, right? I mean, of course Absalom died because for try as we might, we cannot pick and choose the casualties of war. And of course, Absalom died because this is what happens when cruel and cunning men such as Joab are employed and empowered. And of course, it ends with David in tears. How could it not? He and his son had made too many mistakes for it to end any other way. There was David's inaction when his son raped his daughter. There was Absalom murdering his brother. There were three years of exile and two years of house arrest in which neither saw each other's face, though they had plenty opportunity to. They let their pride, anger, and bitterness keep them from speaking truth and forgiveness to each other. There was not just one thing, but many that led to where Absalom and David ended up. Exactly how Absalom died was surprising, but that the relationship would end in tears almost seems inevitable. Which brings us back to Ephesians. 
Perhaps the connection between the passages seems a little clearer now. In Ephesians, we have wisdom toward building healthy relationships. And in 2 Samuel, we have a cautionary tale about broken relationships and how two people who love each other so much can fall so far apart. And in offering up these two passages, please don't think that I'm saying that if we follow all these verses in Ephesians, all our relationships will be super excellent all the time. We don't have enough control for that to be possible. And I'm not even saying that if we don't follow all these uh, instructions in Ephesians, that all our relationships will fall apart. I'm not sure how they wouldn't, but stranger things have happened. What I am saying is slightly more modest. What I am saying is that all the yeah buts add up. Though David and Absalom committed some pretty awful crimes against each other, there wasn't just one thing that tore them apart. And there wasn't just one failed chance at reconciliation that kept them apart. There were lots of missteps, large and small, that added up to their downfall. And the same is true of our relationships. Though we may not raise armies and go to war with each other, no two people are driven together or torn apart by just one thing. It may seem like that sometimes, but it's never just one thing. All our relationships are stitched together with lots of pieces, lots of words and deeds, moments and memories, none of which make or break the relationship by themselves, but all of which matter. And a yeah, but tries to dismiss this truth. When we respond to an ethical dilemma with a yeah, but, we are trying to ignore, diminish, or dismiss the consequences of an action we want to take. And when we dismiss the consequences, we make it easier to do that which we know we shouldn't. And it's easiest to dismiss the consequences of an action when we pretend or view it as a small, isolated incident. Yeah, I know it's wrong, we tell ourselves, but it's not that big a deal and I'm only going to do it just this once. And then when that wrong inevitably becomes several isolated incidences, which then becomes a pattern, which then becomes a habit, which then inevitably leads to someone getting hurt, we are genuinely, genuinely surprised because we ignored how our actions one by one would lead us to this surprising yet inevitable result. So here's what I propose. That we practice predicting the future. An impossible task, I know, but there's still fruit in trying. Return to the Ephesian side of your insert and refocus on that verse you underlined or circled or otherwise seared in your mind. Next time you are confronted with a scenario that gives you the opportunity to either follow or dismiss that instruction, just pause. Your mind may have already come up with a yeah, but that will empower you to do that thing you want to do, but you know you shouldn't. But just pause. Look ahead. Don't give in to that yet. And you're not looking ahead to see how much this action or this moment will matter. It will matter, and that's enough. You're not looking ahead to see exactly what will come of this action. None of us are that smart. Unfortunately, your task, our task is much easier. 
pause and look ahead to see if you can gather whether the action you want to take will lead you one step closer to a comedy or one step closer to a tragedy. And then let your prediction and not your yeah but guide you. Amen.